That's right. We thought you needed a little energy this morning. I see some of you found your alarm clocks last night. So we were... I didn't hear any of that, but we, we return again to our series, Cries from the Cross. And of course, we've been considering the seven sayings of Jesus, the ones he spoke while he was being crucified. Today, our focus is on the triumphal cry of Jesus, it is finished. So you take out your outline, and that's found in John 19 at verse 30. We will look at the context a bit, so we'll back up to consider a few verses that we saw last week. John 19, we'll begin at 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine or some of your translations say vinegar, was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it to his lips. When he had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Now that sentence in English, it is finished, is only one word in Greek. You know what it is? Tetelestai. One word comes from a Greek, a Greek verb, telio, and it means to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish, to finish. How many of you have turned in your taxes? How many of, them do, of you do it yourself? So when you finish it and you sign it and you date it, you could have shouted to Telestai. When I dropped mine off to my preparer, I yelled to Telestai, please don't give me a big bill. If you run a race, you could shout to Telestai as you break the tape at the end. A servant who completed an assignment would use this word to report back to his master. And it just means you have accomplished what you attempted to do. Now, Jesus didn't whisper it is finished. He shouted it. Matthew 27, 50 says that, and so does Mark 15, 37. It was a, a cry of victory. Perhaps even, you know, he sucked some of that wine, that sour wine from the sponge. Perhaps that wet his vocal cords enough where he could raise his voice triumphantly. But the question for us is, what did Jesus finish? You notice we're not told specifically. He doesn't state it. There's no object to the verb there. Did he mean that his earthly life was finished? Well, it was. But I don't think that's what he intended to communicate when he shouted. Was he declaring that his suffering was concluded? And that was also true. But I don't think that was the thrust of his statement either. I think that he meant that the work that he was given by the Father was now complete. When he shouted to Telestai, he announced 
that everything necessary for our redemption, for our salvation, was accomplished. It's interesting that the previous evening, just as the, at the conclusion of the Passover meal, hours before his arrest, Jesus said to the Father, in what we call the high priestly prayer, John 17, you can turn over there to the left, just a couple of pages. And this only appears in the book of John. It's not in the other Gospels. And he says at verse 4, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So Jesus' life on earth closed. It ended as a successful completion of an eternal plan. Several things I think he completed or he finished. First, he finished or completed the salvation of believers. It's interesting what the angel of the Lord said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. In verse 21. Again, this is the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream when Joseph was considering divorcing Mary. And the angel said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The child within her was conceived by the Spirit. And then at verse 21, and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. That required him to be born fully human, to live a sinless life, to absorb our sins, then suffer and die for those same sins so we could be forgiven. It was a, an actual death for specific sins, not just a symbolic death. And so Jesus accomplished salvation for all who would ever believe in the sufficiency of his sacrifice as payment for their specific sins. Romans 3, 25, turn there at 905. Romans chapter 3. At verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God, are made righteous when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. You know what that means? Well, those people who sinned in times past, who is that? It's Abraham, it's David, it's Moses, it's, it's Ruth, it's, it's every follower of God who sinned before 
the crucifixion of Christ. King David. So all of their sins were brought forward to Christ. Whereas our sins are pushed backward to Christ. And so the sacrifice occurred in, in a point in time. But the sins of the people came from both directions. And were placed on Christ. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight. When they believe in Jesus. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. His holy anger against sin. Against our sins. He didn't just overlook them, you see. They had to be paid for, atoned for. And so Jesus completed everything he came to accomplish when he died for all of our sins. He was finished. When someone dies at age 33, we think their life is not finished, don't we? But Jesus had a full life, a complete life. He had no regrets and nothing left undone. He didn't need to preach another sermon. He didn't need to heal another person. He didn't need to produce another miracle. He died with the satisfaction of knowing that the full purpose for his being sent was successfully fulfilled. Do you hope that happens to you? Well, do you know the mission that God's given you? How many of you think you have a mission? I'm not asking you to describe it yet. How many of you think God's given you one? Do you think every Christian has one? At least one. Well, you have to discover yours. If you want to fulfill it. Brandon, you know yours? You have to know your mission. If you want to have any chance of fulfilling it. Are you making progress? See, if you say, well, I know God wants me to do something, but you don't do anything about it, you'll arrive before God, and your sins will be atoned for, but your mission may not be complete. Do you want to be able to say, God, what you gave me, I pursued with all my energy and all my effort. The fact that Jesus' work was complete means that no religious ritual, that includes baptism and the Lord's Supper, it includes communion, and no good works, feeding the poor, taking care of orphans, and also no obedient behavior is necessary to make Jesus' work effectual. You know what you're required to contribute to earn forgiveness? Do you? Nothing. That's the right answer. You're required to contribute nothing to earn forgiveness or right standing before God. The merit of Christ alone is sufficient for your full salvation. To tell us, God. 
When you feel that, when you understand that, you should be ready to shout that word. We know this passage, or we should, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is one of those handful of verses everyone should have memorized. Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, if you're still in Romans. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for good things you've done. Even for your belief. Your belief, see, is dependence. Rather than you mustering something that's noteworthy. So none of us can boast about it. Salvation's not a joint effort between God and man. It's entirely a work of God's grace. It's received solely by faith or, and trust. But again, that's dependence. That's reliance. When we face God, God doesn't say, why should I allow you into heaven? We don't say, but I mustered such faith. I don't think that's the status at all. Our posture is, you shouldn't allow me in unless you credit your son's righteousness to me. See how that feels? There's nothing of ourselves to offer except our dependence and our acknowledgement that we come bankrupt before God. Now, I'm not saying that we, we aren't called to confess our sins, to repent, to try to live righteous lives, but we don't do that in order to receive forgiveness or even to maintain our status as sons and daughters. We do it to maintain our fellowship, our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can't indulge sin and have intimate connection with God. If you say, I don't feel connected to God, the first question to ask is, what am I allowing in my life that's separating me from Him? What am I harboring or holding on to that's, that's between me and God? Now, it's true, if we don't live obediently, we will certainly be disciplined. But that's the discipline of a loving father. It proves our relationship. Hebrews 12 tells us that. But we will not be rejected by him or separated from him because of anything we do or don't do. Romans 8, 35 through 39. So if you this morning embrace Christ's work for you by faith, you can have the confidence that your eternal destiny is secure. Some of us battle, am I saved, am I lost, am I saved, am I lost? You see yourself slip up in some area. You give in to some temptation, you wonder. But if you've ever received Christ, if you've ever been born again, 
your eternity is secure. Are you sure of your salvation? Do you understand your security isn't based on your behavior? Now, evidence of it, of your salvation, is seen in your behavior. But your security is not based on your behavior at all. It's based on Jesus' completion of his mission. Jesus also finished or satisfied the requirements of the law. Now, what is the law? You read that, you hear me talk about it, you hear other teachers. What is the law? What's the commandments? And who was the law given to? Given to Moses. Where? Mount Sinai, you're right. It was given on Mount Sinai. And it includes civil, ceremonial, and moral requirements. And also commandments. And the law was given to Israel so they would know how to remain right with God. Isn't that correct? Did it work? Did it work? Does anybody think it worked? Mm, No. Moses' law did not render anyone righteous. Moses' law, the Ten Commandments... The regulations, the rituals did not make anyone righteous. Didn't save anyone from judgment. Because righteousness is an absolute standard. And it requires absolute, total, perfect obedience to all of God's commands. Now does that feel hopeless? It is hopeless. But that's the lesson we get from the law. That no person save Christ can accomplish it. James 2 says if you violate the law in one point, you're guilty of what? All of it. One sin makes you as far from God as violating every command. The primary purpose of the law, you see, wasn't to make us righteous. It was to reveal our shortcomings. It was to expose our sin, to show us the weakness in ourselves. So we would know we need a Savior. And we would be pointed to Jesus. Galatians 3, 19-24, Romans 7. Verses 7 and 13. We couldn't be saved by the law. But that doesn't mean that the law was a bad thing. The scripture in Romans 7 says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. And we are judged by the law apart from Christ. Jesus didn't come to set aside the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. You know what he did? He came to fulfill it on your behalf. I haven't yet learned what I owe the IRS. 
But if one of you would like to pay it, as long as you have my social security number on it, they'll consider my account completely satisfied. That's the way Jesus fulfilled the law for us. The demand is real. I'll, I will owe the IRS something. <coughs> Matthew 517. <coughs> Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. That includes the commandments, the sacrificial system, and all the predictions about the Messiah. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. As a Jewish man, Jesus kept every aspect of the law of Moses. He made the annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem to observe the feasts and the festivals. When he was an infant, his parents kept the law for him. And he fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah, which depending on the count, there was either 356 or 362. There's a little difference in the way some of them are viewed. But more than 350 prophecies. And because he satisfied all the law. He could take our violations of it. Then receive the punishment due those sins. So we could receive his righteousness. I want you to feel that. I think, I think some of us, we, we struggle and we strive and we think we have to earn our salvation because we don't understand that we're completely incapable of attaining the level of righteousness necessary to be forgiven. But Christ attained it for us. And we stand before God as holy as Jesus. Did you hear that? Because you have to have his complete, perfect righteousness to ever face God. Again, let's look again at this passage. I want us to get this one. This is a core verse, 2 Corinthians 5. At verse 21. Now the, look at the NIV is on the screen first. I think the translation's better there. And the NIV says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does that strike you? Andy, you're that righteous. You believe that? Perfectly 
righteous. No improvement even possible, much less necessary. Our sins were transferred to Christ when he was then he was sacrificed. Understand that. It takes the guilt and the shame out of our lives. Now some would say, well then people will just do anything they want. If you can, go ahead. Because the point is, if you ever understand the love of Christ, the depth of his sacrifice for for you that's a lot greater motivation toward holy living than fear of punishment isn't it love is always a preferable and a better motivation than fear of retribution in the old testament priests offered the sacrifices jesus was both priest and sacrifice now under the law Sacrifices, animal sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle, which was a tent that was moved from place to place in the wilderness. And later, the temple that was built in Jerusalem. But those sacrifices never removed sins from people. I hear people say, well, in the Old Testament, they were forgiven by the sacrifice. Never. No one has ever been forgiven by the blood of a bull. Hebrews 9. And you know who Hebrews was written to, right? Who knows? Jews. Hebrews. <laughs> Somebody said. Understand this. The book of Hebrews was written to explain the faith to Jews. To help them move from what they had believed and thought to what they are now called to believe and think in Christ. So as you read that, understand why it's full of the explanations about ritual and commandments. Hebrews chapter 9. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Their, their bodies, their surface. This is symbolic, it's imperfect, it's temporary. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Because not only are our consciences cleansed but we're recreated. We're born again. Which enables us to worship God. For by the power of the eternal spirit. Christ offered himself to God. As a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Animals could not substitute for human beings. The sacrifices of animals were, were an object lesson. They demonstrated a very, a very stark truth. That sin required death. But the death of animals didn't provide forgiveness. Hebrews 10, next chapter over, verse 8. First Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices 
or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant, the covenant of law, in order to put the second covenant, the covenant of grace, into effect. For God's will for us was to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Old Testament priests were never allowed to sit while they were on duty. And sacrifices were offered day after day, year after year, because their work was never done. It was never complete. There was an endless stream of sacrifices. And these did cleanse people in a ceremonial way. But it didn't cleanse their consciences, their souls of sin. Verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day. Offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And then jumped to 14. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. You've been made perfect. You know what that's called? That's your justification. Positionally, you stand perfect before God. Look at somebody beside you and say, you are perfect. And you could say, and so am I. That feels good, doesn't it? That's the right way to see yourself. But you're being made holy. You see that? Okay, I'm perfect. But then I'm not perfect. No, as a practical matter, we're not yet perfect, are we? That's called sanctification. So we're declared perfect and we're becoming perfect. We're becoming holy. So both need to be true in our lives. Now you say, yeah, but okay, now Jesus offered this sacrifice. It was the end of sacrifices well, what about the Jews today? Are they offering sacrifices? No. You know why? Because the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by a Roman general, Titus. He also destroyed much of the city and killed 1.1 million Jews. You may not be aware of that. We think of, of Hitler and the Nazis killing 5 million but one, over one million were killed by Romans so many years before. However, Jews are assembling the necessary implements to return to sacrifice. I asked our guide that very question. And I said, are, are you Jews planning to return to sacrifices? And he said, oh yeah. Have you gathered the implements? He said, yeah. He said, that's why... The Muslims don't want us on the Temple Mount because they think that we're going to take over the Temple Mount and rebuild the Temple 
and return to sacrifice them. But the point for us is, have you been made perfect? Have you been made perfect? And if you've been made perfect, the related question is, are you being made holy? Jesus finished and also or ended the power of Satan. 1 John 3, 8. But when people keep on sinning, it shows they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Well, there are many, but they certainly include deceiving, manipulating, tempting to sin, hindering the gospel, opposing God's work, perverting the scriptures, and and you could add others. Now, the word devil is not a name. It's actually a title. And it's a title for the ruler of evil spirits. It's a Greek word that translated literally means accuser or slanderer. Satan, on the other hand, is a Hebrew word, and it is a personal name. Satan is the personal name for the devil, which is the title. And Satan, translated, also means accuser or adversary. Satan and God are not equals, vying for your loyalty. Satan has no power over God, so he opposes God's followers. Satan, and when I say Satan, I'm inclusive of demonic forces, which are real in this world. Satan seduces people into sin then accuses them before God to ridicule God. That's the whole story of Job. You can read through Job. You can read in Zechariah. You can read in Revelation 12.10. So how did Jesus, suffering and death on the cross, destroy the power of Satan? Turn to Colossians 2. Y'all turn along now. Those of you that haven't been bringing your Bibles, bring your Bibles or go buy one and let's have them. At verse 13. You were dead because of your sins and because of the sinful nature, your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, those are demonic forces. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now you know that when a criminal was hung on the cross... His crime was publicly proclaimed by listing his offenses on a board that was nailed above his head or somewhere on the cross. You know that Pilate posted a sign on the cross 
above Jesus' head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But at Colossians 2 verse 14, where he talks about canceling the record of charges and nailing them to the cross. Paul wants each of us to imagine our individual list of sins. Can you imagine them? Can you conjure them up? If you started on the ground, would they go to the ceiling? Probably through the ceiling, wouldn't they? But imagine listing every single sin. Those are the sins that Satan will accuse you of. They're also the sins that only God knows because he's omniscient. They're also the sins you don't recognize as sin, but he does. The list is complete, it's full, it's exhaustive. And then it's nailed over Jesus' head. And your list of sins becomes the very particular, specific, personal sins that he took into himself and was punished for. I want you to get this picture. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's your list above his head. It may have stretched to the ground. It may have folded over the back. Satan thought he was successful. Christ was arrested. Remember, Satan entered, entered Judas for Judas to sell out Jesus. So Satan was behind this plot to put the Son of Glory to death. So he thought he was, he thought he was winning this battle. Jesus is arrested. Then he's wrongfully convicted. Then he's sentenced to death. Then, even though the Jews can't put him to death, the Romans agree to that he's nailed to the cross. And Satan thinks he has won. Because Jesus' voice is silenced. His mission ended. Or so he thought. Satan didn't know. That it was this very death that would be victory over demonic forces. Because you see, the victory wasn't through preaching and evangelism. The victory was through suffering and death. Hebrews 2.14 Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. On the cross, Satan was stripped of his power to accuse Christians before God. You needn't fear that accusation. It's removed. If Satan steps up and says, but I know him and he said this and he did this and she did that. And he said, I, I, and God says, I know. And it's been paid for. What else do you have? 
everything Satan could ever accuse you of. I want you to, the things that you regret, the things that you constantly go back to and feel filled with remorse and shame and guilt, that's only you holding on to it. It's gone. You are righteous. You are free. Do you understand that? If you can get that understanding, your life will change. If you're dragging around in, in, in shame and guilt, you do not understand. Your full list has been nailed to the cross and the Son of Glory died for everything listed. I want you to feel that for a minute. Shane, you feel that? Do you fear Satan's accusations? Or do you feel free? Let me tell you, if you're still in all this shame and guilt, you know what? That's something you believe. That's a wound within you. That's why we, that's why we have, are learning to pray to hear from God through this transformation prayer. Because it removes the wounds that are still stuck in our flesh. Because He's not holding that against you. You're holding that against you. And we can help you get free of that shame, that guilt, that regret, that remorse. Wouldn't that feel good? Soul training is I want you to reflect. Reflect about your list. Not to stay in it, but to realize it was exhaustively written out. And then it was expunged from your life. What did Jesus accomplish for you? Spend some time every day. And then thank him for what you've received. Let me ask you. If you've been forgiven. What are you doing with it? When's the last time. You shared that good news. With someone. How can we hold that to ourselves? I'm asking every one of you. To pray. Invite. Bring someone with you for Easter. Easter is a Sunday that people who are only mildly religious will show up. Even the curious, you have to go get them. We, we printed these cards, Easter at Brookwood. They're available at all the doors. They're on the counters. You can write a note to someone. We didn't say, come with me or join us. We don't want that. Because you know who says, come join me? You do. We don't print that. This is just telling them time and place. You write out a note to them. You invite them personally. Do you, re do you know what you possess? It's too good to keep. Do you know that, Carrie? It's too big for you to hold. We have to give it away. So these are available. Membership class 
You say, I, you know, I like what this church does. I want to be part of it. I want to understand it. I want to be part of it. Membership class in here next Sunday at 2.30. Small group and ministry sampler 5 to 6. Now here's what I want to do before you go. Do you believe it's been finished for you? Then I want you to stand up and shout the telestai. Andy, you lead us. Go ahead. Shout it now. Shout it loud. Let me hear it. Tatalastai, it is finished for me. God, let us live in the awareness that all is forgiven and we are free. In your blessed son's name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.